Well, happy Sunday. We'll be in John chapter 11. John chapter 11 today. We'll start at the beginning of the chapter and we'll be looking at, uh, looking at it piece by piece as we go through. And as you know, many of you know, John chapter 11 is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And it is a kind of a pinnacle of his ministry. It's kind of the, the ultimate crescendo of his public ministry because from this point on in the book of John, he's, he's going to do a few things publicly in last week, but then he's going to withdraw to his disciples and then he's going to meet the cross and then he will be raised again. And so this chapter comes and, and brings to a crisis all those watching that those who are opposing him realize they must oppose him even to death and those that believe him they must believe him even unto life and so here we have this great chapter this great opportunity and what I want to do is is rather than give you a didactic breakdown of it and, and bring out the doctrine of the resurrection or whatever what I'd like to do is I would like to go through John chapter 11 piece by piece and just kind of present an extended meditation on it that we may put ourselves in the scene that we can soak in what is happening here and we can see Jesus interaction with the various people involved we're going to look at him with his disciples with Martha with Mary and then ultimately with Lazarus so we're going to begin by reading at the beginning here in John chapter 11. We're going to read the first 16 verses. Here's what it says there. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, from the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant he was taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for bringing us together on this Lord's day. We thank you, Lord, for the account of Jesus with his disciples and, and what follows in this chapter. Lord, we are in awe of the glory and the power of Jesus Christ. 
And we pray this day that you will put onto our hearts the significance of these things, that we may glorify your name in the earth. We thank you, Lord, for your great care for your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we've got a, uh, an incredible opportunity here in chapter 11 to see Jesus interact with a variety of people. Now, the main point I want to make today is simply this. Jesus is not only the source of life itself, but he is the only way to resurrection for the world. And what we're going to see as this unfolds is we're going to see this interaction that he has with various groups of people. And so we're going to see him with the disciples, with Martha, with Mary, with Lazarus. And in the end of the chapter, uh, you see him with his enemies. I'll leave that to your homework because we don't have time to cover it this morning. Some of you are in awe at my discretion. So first thing I want to take a look at is here Jesus with his disciples. And we need to talk about a situation here, and particularly this delay of Jesus. If we do an accounting here and we realize where they were, and we look back into the previous chapter, uh, we see that they were in a place across the Jordan near where John was baptizing at the beginning. That was interesting. So he was a full day's journey from Jerusalem or Bethany, which is just a half mile away from Jerusalem on the other side of the Mount of Olives. So assuming then a full day of travel, the messenger would have been sent to him on day one. And then uh, on that day seems to be the day that Jesus died or Lazarus dies. And then on day two, you know, the, the messenger being a full days away would have stayed the night with them. He would have left from Jesus and the others with bearing Jesus message back the next day, and he would have returned to Bethany and gotten there late in day two. Jesus then waits yet another day, because it says he waited two days. Then he departs, arriving in Bethany on day four. So that's how you kind of account, how you figure out how many days this is. When they say, oh, he's already been in there four days, you know, surely now he stinks, uh, you'll understand. And you'll know that Jesus' delay of two days was really creating a four-day delay with a day of travel for the messenger on one end, his day of travel on the other end. And so this is a, a very interesting thing. And what this tells us is that the messenger brings the message back from Jesus. And that message was very simply this. Um, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. I want you to process this for a minute. The messenger comes back. Lazarus is already dead. And they're like, well, what did the Lord say? And he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And so that would be a bit of a shock. They would say, well, he was obviously wrong. He obviously didn't realize how sick Lazarus was. He obviously didn't realize the, the whole situation, which is why we sent for him. And this has to have some people doubting. And so this delay is an important point and is for us to, uh, to look at, examine, understand, because we're going to see Jesus tell us clearly why he delayed. In verse 4, he says it this way. 
Um, he says it does not lead to death, but it's for what? It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. He lays out the purpose for his delay. And in understanding this, you realize he lays out the purpose for Lazarus's death. Let that sink in. This chapter, rightly understood, will turn the faith of many upside down because their faith is in a Jesus who came to make their lives better. Their faith is not in the Jesus who came to give you life and give it eternally. There's a great difference. Look at verses 5 and 6 here. He says something really astonishing, and there is a single word, a conjunction at the beginning of verse 6 that is so important for us to understand. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved them. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. Did you ever notice that before? Did you ever notice that the reason he stayed where he was and delayed and let Lazarus die was because he loved them? This little word translated as so, it's a little word in Greek too. It's just the word un. And it most commonly is translated as therefore. In other words, it's drawing out the purpose. It's extending one verse into the next and relating the two together in this way, rightly understood as so. He loved them, so he delayed. His love necessitated the delay and even the death. And there indeed is an entire sermon because it was greater love for Jesus to put them through what we would consider to be the most incredible suffering that we could experience in this world rather than heal him right away. Do you realize how often we pray for one thing? But the greater plan of God is another. And here, the prayer, as it were, because let's face it, sending a messenger to Jesus is like a prayer, right? They send a messenger to Jesus for help. Hey, your friend is sick. But the answer is wait. And he dies. And he even says, and in verse 15 here, as he's speaking this out with the disciples, once he says, we're going to go, he says, for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Now, the disciples were already believing. And if you want any more evidence of that, it's right there in what the disciples say. Next, Thomas, called the twin, speaking up for the disciples, they say, let us also go that we may die with him. Let's go back to Judea. They were trying to kill Jesus, and surely they'll find us with him. They'll kill us too. Let's go. And we don't know if he's just making light of the situation. I think he probably is. The apostles were all human like we are, and he's probably trying to make the best of it. But nevertheless, they went into certain danger. So I want you to notice then here, as he interacts with the disciples, that the love of Jesus and the glory of God 
end in the same place. How much does God love you? He loves you so much that he desires to see himself glorified in your life. And people hear that because they think, and they, and they think and they react to it like, God wants to glorify himself? That's God's purpose in human beings is to glorify himself? And that's, that's arrogant. Well, for a human being, it would be arrogant. What if the only doctor in the world that could cure your particular problem, your particular syndrome, the thing causing you pain, the thing bringing unto you gradually death, desired to make his case to you that he was both capable and willing to heal you? And he showed you all kinds of charts and he gave you his resume and he says, this is how many of these procedures I've done and this is my success rate. You need me to heal you. Do you realize the doctor is glorifying himself in your sight? And why is he doing it? For your benefit, I suspect. Now the doctor in an analogy breaks down when you receive the bill. But nevertheless, you get the point. The best situation for a human being is to have God glorified in your life. And, you know, glorified is a churchy word. Think of it this way, to have God magnified in your life, to have God revealed in your life, to have God shown to you how great and incredible and powerful and wonderful and loving he is. That is your best situation ever. Love and glory end in the same place. No matter how disturbing or difficult the trip might be, love and glory end in the same place. And we see here, we see a, a glimpse of hope from the disciples that they are increasing in their faith. They're ready to go with Jesus to death, so they think. When it comes right down to it, they're not quite there yet. But they didn't understand what Jesus had said. Thomas didn't understand what he said back in verses 9 and 10. He talked about light and darkness and what he was saying there. And you can play around and read it later and figure it out later. What he was saying there is, you're going to be with me. You're going to have the light with you. You're going to be okay. You're not going to stumble. You're not going to be in darkness. So they'll figure that one out later. So here with his disciples, we get this behind-the-scenes look on how Jesus operates, working things to his glory for the love of his people. We have this look at the disciples, a somewhat increasing faith. Now we're going to travel to Bethany with them, and we're going to look at their interaction, Jesus' interaction with Martha, first of all. So let's start verse 17, read through verse 27 here. It says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am 
the resurrection, and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe. But you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Well, so they go to Bethany, and they're very near to Jerusalem. They're, very, they're in Judea, in the same area as Jerusalem. And so they're, you know, Jesus is a wanted man there. He's already caused a lot of problems. They've already tried to gather him up and kill him. But here's some consolation here in meeting Martha, because Martha has the faith that he could have healed him. If you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. And then if you look at verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, does that mean that she suspects that Jesus could or will raise him from the dead? Well, I don't think so. If we look at verse 24, Martha says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So she's focused on that. Maybe there's some hint that well, I know that, you know, if you wanted, you could, but I know this will happen later. But we'll see as this unfolds that I don't think she fully understands Jesus' relationship to the resurrection. That is the general resurrection at the end of days. A lot of faithful Jews in those days understood that resurrection was part of God's eschatological, that is, last things or end times purpose. Can someone turn that down just a little bit? It got loud all of a sudden. But many understood this, and there are several scriptures you should be aware of of why they understood this. The first would be Ezekiel 37, in which God was in the first place talking about reestablishing and bringing the nation of Israel back. And in the second place, kind of giving this hint that there is a, a resurrection to be enjoyed. Something else they might be thinking about is Isaiah 53. I'll throw it up there for you. And this is the one that's very clear, the servant of the Lord, which we know to be Jesus Christ, that he fulfills Isaiah chapter 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he, should, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. So in other words, he was going to be a sacrifice, but then his life would be extended. And as we saw also in Psalm 22, where it mentions the fact he goes through all these things, certain death, as you read the psalm, you're like, this is really intense. It even speaks of piercing the hands and the feet as in the crucifixion. And you get down far, pretty far in the psalm, verse 22, he says, and then I'll tell about it in the midst of the congregation. And Jesus did. They could also have in mind Daniel chapter 12 after these great visions and everything that the prophet Daniel was given concerning the last days while in exile concerning the reestablishment of Israel and, and even what would follow. It says in chapter 12, which is near the end of the book here, at that time shall arise Michael the great prince who has charge of your people and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. So there was this very clear notion here in Daniel 
there is going to be a general resurrection of all human beings, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt. And look what it says here. Those who are wise, Daniel is saying that in the present tense, shall shine like the brightness of the sky above something yet to come. So they have to be resurrected for this to happen. The faithful, the ones who are wise, will shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. A beautiful encouragement from the Old Testament that there was going to be resurrection. And Mary and Martha, and as we'll see in a moment, Mary, Jesus had taught them this, and they believed it, and they understood it. So there's some increasing faith here. Martha has the faith he could, you know, could do something perhaps. The disciples had the faith to join him in his dangerous journey back into Judea. And then look at the profession that Martha makes. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. The one and only. The Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So she understands that much, but she doesn't really know yet what that means. I want to look at what he says in verse 25, just a moment, when he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Earlier in John, we looked at this I am construction, and he uses it again here, this unnecessary way of saying I am that would tip people off that he's speaking perhaps of this burning bush incident where the Lord introduces himself to Moses. And he uses it here to say, I am the resurrection and the life. Well, so what? Jesus is not claiming that his power and authority is a privilege or an ability or an appointment. By saying, I am the resurrection and the life, he is making resurrection and life a matter of his identity. And that's a big difference if you really understand it. The idea most people had in their, their mind of the Christ is this someone who would be so faithful to God that God would entrust this person with great things and he would accomplish great things, but nevertheless, God would still be God and the Messiah would still be a man. And here comes Jesus. He says, no, I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, resurrection and life has its own, has its existence in me. And he says that they will never die. Remember at the beginning of the chapter when he says, Lazarus is, has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him? Disciples misunderstood. Ah, oh, if he's asleep, he'll get better. Why did Jesus not say, and then he says it plainly, you know, and, and uh, he says it plainly in verse 14, Lazarus has died. Why did he not just say it plainly in the first place? He's teaching a lesson. He's teaching a truth that he states plainly in verse 25. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Truly. The rest of the New Testament shows the disciples often speaking as those among the congregation, those believers who have gone on to be with the Lord, not as having died, but being asleep. 
because death is not an appropriate term for those who are in Christ. Why? Because he is the resurrection and life. If you're in Christ, you are in the resurrection and the life. And this is the glory that he spoke of, to show the greatness of the Father and the Son, the resurrection and the life. He's both the source of life, and he's both the power and authority behind the resurrection. Now let's go watch him with Mary. Starting in verse 28, here's what it says. When she had said this, that is Martha's profession of who he is, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he, who opened the eyes of the blind man, also have kept this man from dying? Notice Mary went immediately to Jesus. There's one thing here in this scene that is more important than the tomb, more important than the loss, more important than the grieving, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 32, we say we see that she had the same kind of faith as Martha. She comes and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Complete confidence that he would have healed him had he been there. No doubt Jesus could have healed him. Even the crowd is thinking this. As they say in verse 37, many in the crowd, you know, could he not have opened the eyes of the blind man? Also have kept this man from dying? Now notice neither Mary nor Martha asked him to raise Lazarus. They had faith that he would be raised later, but did not ask it for now. They believed that Christ was the Son of God, but I don't think they yet believed he was God himself. Now let's look at, the, let's turn our attention to Jesus here in this scene as Mary did. Notice Jesus' response as it's stated in verses 33 to 35 that he was deeply moved, that he was greatly troubled, and that he wept. He felt the pain of loss. Sympathy and empathy for his friends that were hurting, for his friend that had suffered, for his friend that no doubt near the end, no matter his faith in Jesus, no matter what, at the end we tend to have some fear. We're ready to die up here, but our bodies rail against the process and make it a horror of us. 
he empathizes with and sympathizes with and even shares some of the gut-wrenching pain of loss that his sisters felt. And so he wept. He has experienced all things whatsoever human beings have experienced. But he experiences it on a deeper level. I want you to think about this. We know that the book of Hebrews says that he was tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. And that is correct. But let me give you a perspective of this. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan himself, he was tempted with things that you and I cannot be tempted with. Things particular to his position as the Son of God. Things that you and I could not be tempted with because we could never actually do. They could give us the kingdoms of the world. We could not reign over them. We could throw ourselves down off the pinnacle of the temple, but we have no promise that we're going to be guarded until the time has come. And I believe the same to be true with his suffering. And I'll challenge you with this. You study in the New Testament, you study suffering, and you study temptation, and you're going to find the two kind of blur together in almost the same thing that the suffering and the temptation are almost synonymous. Those two things, because each kind of suffering is a temptation. It's a temptation to doubt, to question God. It's a temptation to give up. And here, he suffers more than anyone else in the scene, and more than you and I ever have at the loss of a loved one, because when we suffer, we think of life without that loved one. When we suffer, we think of the suffering that person will undergo. When we experience a loss of somebody, we, we think in terms of what life was and what it is going to be now without them and how they'll be this emptiness and this thing without it. But do you realize when Jesus sees someone suffer and Jesus sees someone die, he knows not only what it would have been like if they didn't die, he knows what their life was designed to be like in the first place. And if we really understand and study our Bibles and, and look around, we're going to see that our lives are but a mere shadow of the glory to be revealed in us. See, what God intended when he placed mankind into the garden is that there would be this perpetual relationship with them, that they would live forever and that they would serve with God, alongside God, that they would reign upon the earth, that they would be his stewards of the planet, extending the order of the garden around the entire world and enjoying it and enjoying his presence all along. Something that would have constant purpose, constant contentment, constant joy in the presence of God. And sometimes we look at death and we look at it as a relief because of the difficulties of this life. Why do you think so many people are tempted to take their own lives? Because genuinely, life is hard. And then we, we have someone close to us die and we try to console each other at the services and we say, well, at least he's not suffering anymore. 
And Jesus looks at someone that we would consider relatively blessed and relatively healthy and, and weep, saying that person's not nearly what I wanted them to be. Not even close to what they will have in me if they but believe. And another difficulty of it is even when we face trials, temptations, and even death, that it is so small a thing compared to the glory of God to be revealed in his people. Paul says that in Romans chapter 8. It's many people's favorite chapter of the Bible. And he says, I don't consider the present sufferings worthy to compare to the glory that's to come. And we know what Paul went through, imprisonment and stonings and persecution of all kind until he's eventually executed for his faithfulness to Jesus. And he says, stuff's not even worth considering. Don't plot it on a graph. You won't even be able to see the suffering next to the glory. There are a couple things about Jesus that put this loss in a different perspective. He's also the creator. Death was an intruder. What happened to Lazarus was dragged into creation by the betrayer who has so soiled his creation as to bring it almost to an earthly end. But he is the resurrection and the life. Think about what has happened here with Lazarus as we look at the final verses. Verse 38, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth, Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. He came to the tomb. He commands the stone to be taken away. Martha reminds him of the potential smell. And I don't think that's a rebuke on the part of Martha. I think she's just, you know, she's a very practical person when you read about her elsewhere. She's like, you know what? It's going to smell by now. You know, almost apologizing like, well, we can do that, but... Now, Jesus gives a reminder and insurance, so to speak, that he knows what he's doing. In verse 41, he looks up, as was common with Jewish people, faithful Jewish people, when they prayed. He, he looks up to pray, and he spoke to make sure that the source of the miracle was known. As much as he had these powers within himself, the power of, of resurrection, the power of life itself, he was sent by the Father, and that is what he needed people to understand. 
that he was sent from the Father, from the very same one to whom they pray. And so he lifts his eyes up and he prays and he starts by giving thanks for all that the Father has done. The Father sent the Son. And this is how the Son lived out his mission as the faithful messenger, the Son sent by the Father. And then he calls to him, Lazarus, come out. You understand the power of Jesus is such that even the dead can hear his voice and obey. This is what he said earlier in John, in chapter 5, verse 25. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. In the previous chapter, which this really kind of springs out of this previous chapter as he spoke about himself as the good shepherd, he says this, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. How far do they follow you, Jesus? I give them eternal life and they will never perish. This is seen in the book of Luke. He does another resurrection there. But this is also seen in an interesting place in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 as Paul writes to the church and he describes them this way. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead. See, raising of the dead isn't something that simply comes later. It's something that happens now when someone believes the gospel repents of their sins and trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. It says in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What he gives us in John chapter 11 is a miracle so complete and so perfect that he asks others around him, all Jews, to go help remove the linens. Touching a dead person was going to make you unclean. You wouldn't be able to worship, and there was a, there was a holiday coming pretty soon, and they were going to want to worship at the temple. But what Jesus does, he does completely to where Lazarus wasn't even unclean which they could assist him and they could touch him and they could embrace him and they could rejoice with him at what Jesus had done, at what Jesus is doing, and at what Jesus will do. This is so encouraging and I hope you see. I have two just very simple conclusions here or encouragements. Firstly is this. This, John chapter 11, is a picture of the Savior that John offers to us. This is the Savior offered to us. Remember what he said at the end of his book. He said, I wrote these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. This is the Savior that's offered to us here in chapter 11, the, the passionate one who loves his friends, who loves their long-term even more than their short term. 
because he trades the short-term gain of healing him for the long-term gain of seeing God glorified and bringing him resurrection. He's the one who's all-knowing. He knows what's going to happen. He knows when it's going to happen. He times it perfectly. He is all-powerful because he simply calls to the dead and they respond. He's able to call the dead to life. So he's able to call us to himself and make us live. And the implication of that is profound because Lazarus was dead. And from our perspective in the world, there's no worse condition to be in. And so whatever your baggage is and whatever your sin is and whatever your errors of thinking might be and all those things are nothing compared to the power of the God that calls you to himself that you might live. So respond. We are in an age of great difficulty. And we see great difficulty in our nation, still among the most prosperous that have ever existed. But we see trends, we see movements, we see things happening that are very disturbing. Well, it's time for us, as God's people, to bring the news that it's time for all of us, God's people or not, to grow up. To get real about ourselves to be honest about who we are, to be humble about who we are, and recognize, yeah, gee, I've got this and that problem, and I can't imagine myself being one of those Christian people or doing anything good for the kingdom or anything else. I'm just such a worm and such a sinner and so despised by the world and everything else. And we need to grow up and say, it's not about me, it's about that guy who just called someone out of a tomb. Let's stop trying to impress one another. You realize everybody trying to impress one another on planet Earth is like running for Mr. and Mrs. Aviator on a crashing plane? <laughs> really, I want that image to be fixed in your mind because that's what we're doing. Trying to impress people on social media, trying to be somebody. I can't tell you how many times I try to bring the gospel to somebody and they end up giving me a resume of what a good person they are. And there are many hard-hearted people in our society. And I encourage them to grow up, to stop trying to tell Christians how bad they are and how good you are. Our gospel says very clearly, none are worthy. He's the one who calls. He's the one who makes us worthy. We merely repent of our sins and throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus Christ for mercy. And that's nothing we get to boast about. So this is the Savior offered to us, and this is the Savior we offer to the world. We unapologetically offer life. And so often Christians are pressed into saying what they are against and justifying their position against this or against that in the culture. Let us begin to proclaim what we are for. We are for life. We are for the life that looks like the, the contentment and the joy and the purpose and the glory described, as I said, was intended in the garden. And indeed, as Adam and Eve experienced before their sin and will be experienced even fuller by the people of God at the end. That's what we're for. So you can label me as against this and that, but let me tell you what I'm for. I'm for the very best life that you could possibly ever even have eternally, forever, by the power of God 
who makes it so. We need not apologize for our Savior because he is precisely what every human being needs. And we do not need to compromise his gospel, for it is the very power of God unto salvation. Let's pray. Father God, you are glorious. And Lord, we fall short of your glory personally, but we also fall short of even comprehending it. For here we are in our context, you're describing something so wonderful that, that we sometimes can't see it from here. But let us, each of us, see at least the next thing. Let us see that you can grant us faith to repent of our sins. I pray that you would lift Jesus up in our hearts, that we may have the encouragement to realize he can forgive me, and he can cleanse me, and he can change me, and he can put me on the path of purpose that he has. Lord, I pray that you will minister greatly to each of us as we go and we share the gospel truth with people that we may hold up before them the beautiful Savior and the mighty work that he has for us and the glory to share with us. Lord, I pray that you will be all the more glorified in your people as we go from this place, share your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.